Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Um, 
just really love working one-on-one with people, helping them. Because I, you know, especially when I was in school, I started to have a lot of physical symptoms. And I went to my primary care doctor and got a whole battery of tests. And they, they basically just came back and said, you're fine. It's all in your head. And I knew that I wasn't fine. And so to not have that validation was discouraging. And I uh, I started to seek out other treatments. And so I started to, to do some of these things. You know, I started to use essential oils. I started to get acupuncture. I started to go to energy workers. And that really helped me to heal physically, but also to get in touch with all of the stuff I hadn't processed emotionally. Yeah. That was kind of the cause, I believe, of those physical symptoms. So now, you know, I'm in a position where I can take what I've experienced and what I've learned and hopefully help other people to heal and help bring them through that journey. Well, when you say that when you went into doctors with those symptoms, they dismissed them as being all in your head. I'm so struck by that because they are all in your head and yet your head is driving your body. I've been writing a lot about the research between the research links we're showing now between brain state and symptoms. And for example, some of the studies I've been reading that in certain brainwave states that you can read very easily using an MRI that it produces massive increases in stress hormones like cortisol and also compromises our health by depressing our immune system. So sure, maybe all in your head, but it is having a massive effect on your body. Yeah, and tackling it at the level of the mind and emotions allows you to heal. I'm so glad you found those energy therapies that let you you shift those symptoms because yeah, you're right. Unless we do that and do, do it early, we can suffer from them our whole lives long. So do you find young people are receptive to energy therapies? I think that young people generally are more open to trying different things. They haven't spent as many years being told that that stuff is woo-woo, it's nonsense, it doesn't work, you shouldn't believe in that. There's, I think, less years of socialization. And, you know, I believe that we, we already know this. We know how to heal ourselves. But as we get older, we forget. And so I think teens are much closer to that remembering stage than adults are. I find that they're generally pretty open to trying it, to kind of experimenting with it. And then, you know, because of that openness, often you'll see shifts happen quicker. Yeah, I know. As I've been reading research on acupressure, I've seen that some of the studies are showing that young people, like teenagers, are able to shift those symptoms of PTSD much, much, much quicker than older people. Yeah, and they also, you know, they don't have 20 years, 30 years, 40 years after an incident to continue to kind of train themselves or tell their brain that they have PTSD and that memory was terrible and that they're never going to get through it and all of the, these lies that we tell ourselves that we start to believe. And so if you can kind of stop that process sooner, I think it's sometimes easier to, to see results or easier to see a shift. I was so nervous. I used that same word, lies, in a workshop last year and I thought normally I'm really polite and always totally evidence-based, research-based and tipped around the issue, but I just stood up at the front of the workshop and said, all those things you were told about your limitations when you were children, they're lies. And I was just like sitting there, bolt upright, <laughs> shocked. But it's, I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear you call them lies as well, because they are. I, and I, I just get mad that people do hear so many of these limiting statements from their teachers, their parents, their coaches, their siblings, and then they just take them in. And of course, there are no conscious filters when you're two, three, four, five years old. Your whole prefrontal cortex hasn't developed yet. And so people wind up buying all of these stories that you you're right, they are just lies that rob us of a sense of connection with our potential. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you're working with kids and with teenagers, especially if, if the parents are feeling frustrated because they feel like they've tried
tried so many different things and nothing is working. When they see a shift in their teenager, it actually can shift the dynamics of the entire family. So it can be really powerful when the when the parents see that. Then they start to kind of to go back to that word question. You know, some of the lies that they've been telling themselves and go, oh, you know, maybe there is a, a different way of doing this or a easier way to work through some of this. So you say when teens change, that can change the dynamic of the whole family. Absolutely, yeah. Give me an example of a real life situation where that happened. Well, I think. You know, if there's a teenager that is dealing with a lot of anxiety, you know, they're struggling with social anxiety, being around friends, maybe have some things that the medical community might label as like obsessive compulsive disorder where they want everything a certain way. They might get worked up about tests or sports at school or, you know, doing a presentation at school. And that can be really disruptive to the entire family because then, you know, that the teenager is coming home and when they sit down at dinner, they're noticeably stressed. Their energy is impacting their sibling. Maybe their sibling says something to them and they kind of bite their sibling's head off and snap at them and so that causes a fight. And then mom gets frustrated, dad gets frustrated. Whoever, you know, whoever is in the home is having to kind of deal with that energy. And you know, I think parents are well-intentioned so they're they're trying to figure out, okay, well, what can we do to help our child through this? So I've had, I've had parents, you know, they, they take their kid to their primary their pediatrician. Maybe they start them on some type of medication, and then I'll introduce some techniques like let's let's try a box water remedy. Let's try some essential oils that they can use during the day while they're at school or at home while they're studying. And all of a sudden, they notice you know their teenager is more calm when they're studying, or when their midterm exams coming up, they're not as stressed out. Or they were able to do a presentation at school, and all of a sudden now they're more excited about school and less you know less anxious about it. And so then the family isn't feeling like you know, they're they're almost feeling like, okay, now we can, you know, we can breathe, we can kinda of relax a little because we don't have to walk around in this hyper vigilant state or this hyper just having that energy shift in the home because that teenager's energy shift can change obviously anyone the teenager interacts with, but because they're home half of the day, it's gonna impact the dynamics within the family as well. Yeah, and family dynamic systems theory, the idea is that when one person in a constellation changes, that changes the energy of everyone else in the constellation, just like if you have a bunch of magnets and iron filings and they're in a certain position, you don't need all the magnets to shift for the energy field to shift. Only one magnet has to shift and then all the energy patterns in the entire constellation shift. Absolutely. And that's why it's so powerful too for a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to change other people and help other people. But the best thing that you can do for other people is often is to change yourself, to work on yourself and shift your energy. And then that becomes kind of influential to them, but it, it becomes an example for them and so that can be huge whether it's in a family or another you know a, a friendship or whatever the relationship is yeah i know it's so true and i've been reading studies recently about the phenomenon called emotional contagion that's the concept that emotions are contagious just the way bacterial and viral diseases are and i've read some great case studies of workplaces where one person joined the workplace and they really brought a lot of negative energy to the workplace and soon the entire workplace culture had shifted for the worse other examples where the opposite happened, where somebody joined the workplace and it may not have been even a senior person, it may have been a very junior person, but them just bringing good energy to the workplace was able to affect the energy of the entire workplace. So this, this phenomenon of emotional contagion is, is very powerful and it 
whether you know, I, I think it's probably mediated partly by energy field and it's partly mediated by by actual concrete behaviors. But however it happens, it can have a, a ripple effect all around you. Yeah, and I know I I personally experienced that in different workplaces. So yeah, the one person can make it or break it or certainly change it. Yeah. Are you doing this in a, on, a, on a larger scale, in larger scale programs as well as with individuals? I do some webinars and some stuff online, but I've primarily been working just locally, doing a lot of community education, a lot of a lot of classes. Yeah, and then of course teaching in, in a group is great if you're doing it in a class because then you can produce emotional contagion among members of the class. They can all start to be influencing each other positively. And what sorts of challenges usually are these teens describing to you as their big ones? I mean, what what you mentioned about emotional abuse in their first relationship, well, that, that's shocking that, that even their first relationship would be abusive. But yeah, I think this is, I, this is what I wrote my dissertation on, so it's something that I actually, it's ironic because when I went into the field of social work, I said, I'll do anything except domestic violence, and I ended up in my first internship working with domestic violence and really became passionate about it very quickly. And when it, with teens, a whole lot of things kind of coming together, they don't have relationship experience, so they don't really know what's normal and what's not normal. Um, in in general, the research has shown that these gender dichotomies are much more exaggerated during teenage years. And in heterosexual relationships, girls are attracted to boys that are more aggressive and more, you know, what our society would stereotype as more masculine. And boys are more attracted to girls that are more passive. And so that kind of sets safe for that to play out in the relationship. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of teenagers have said things to me that, you know, if, especially teenagers, I work more with teen girls than boys and they'll say things like well if he didn't get jealous then I would have thought that he didn't care about me and so really kind of the skewed sense of what love means and so I think you know it's important for us as adults to really have conversations about what healthy relationships are starting way before they even get to the point where they're going to even think about dating so the foundation is already there and when they get to the point where they begin dating they don't you know they're not looking at oh well, if he's not jealous, that means he doesn't care. They're looking for those healthier things in a relationship. Yeah, this is fascinating, and I think it's so valuable as we think and prepare ourselves for being mentors and guides to, to those teens. Jessica, I was so struck by your observation that for many people, real love and passion is modeled in terms of drama and jealousy and other negative emotions, and that these kinds of messages are conveyed to people via the media. They see in the movies, they see in TV shows, they see these kinds of emotional upheavals, and that means you're a really juicy, passionate relationship, and people don't really have a sense necessarily or get much modeling around having a juicy, passionate relationship that isn't also violent and emotionally abusive, and I'm just so struck by the way that that's prevalent in our society. I remember back in my own college days, one of my one of my personal curses was being, being a nice guy. I remember I, I had a friend called Peter, and he was not a nice guy toward women at all, but he would cheat on, on, on them. He was he was never physically abusive, but he certainly didn't take them seriously. He he just he really just used them and left them, and yet they flocked to him. He was like the most popular. He was like the chick magnet in college. Whereas the nice guys, we had a nice guys club. None of the women were at all interested in us because we you know we were there was danger there whatsoever. It was a safe place, and it's a really inversion of, of what we would now want people or train people to see. Yeah, and I, I think that I agree. It's all over the the 
media and the music, TV, the movies. And so, you know, we're just socialized to think that this is what a relationship is and this is what passion looks like. And then when we're older and wiser, hopefully we learn that you don't need to have the drama to have the passion. You can have passion and kindness as well. But it might be a while before people go through the painful lessons where they learn that. I'm also curious, you were mentioning that you've had many instances in your life where you were able to just manifest things, make things happen as your own intentions, as your own thought process was was focused on an intention or a goal. I'd love to have you share some of those stories with us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the first one that stands out to me was something that happened before I knew anything about intention or the law of attraction, any of that. I had, I was in undergrad school and I opened up a magazine and I saw a picture of Arizona State University. And I live on the other side of the country in New York. And I thought, oh my goodness, it is so beautiful there. I'm going to go there for grad school. And I knew I wanted to go to grad school for social work. I had no idea if they offered a program in social work. I had no idea. But in that moment, when I saw that picture, I, I closed my eyes and I could see myself there. I could feel myself there. And it, it's still to this day so vivid, that moment. And I knew that I was going to go there. So then I went through the steps. I, I applied to grad school. They did have a social work program. I also applied locally. And it was about a week before classes were starting. And I thought to myself, well, I guess it's, you know, I didn't have the money to move across the country. So I thought to myself, I guess I need to like resign myself to the fact that I'm staying here. And I had been telling people up until that point, I'm going to Arizona. I don't know how I'm going, but I'm going. So in that moment where I decided, okay, I guess I'm staying here. I also decided, ironically, well, if I'm going to stay here, I need to get food. So I'm going to go grocery shopping. So I opened up my bank statement and I looked at my account and there was a couple thousand dollars in my account. And I thought, oh my goodness, where did that come from? And it was because Arizona State had processed my financial aid and given me a refund check. And so this was on Thursday. I called my parents and I said, I'm driving to Arizona tomorrow. So they came and helped me pack up the car that night. I got in my car. I drove to Arizona, which is a, a very long drive. I got there on Sunday. And I did have an uncle that lived there. So I planned on just sleeping on his couch until I could find an apartment. And when I got there, he said, you know what? I know somebody who just broke up with their boyfriend, so they don't want to stay in Arizona any, any longer. They're looking at moving, but they're worried about breaking their lease. Would you take her lease over for her? The apartment's fully furnished. She doesn't want anything for any of the furniture. <laughs> that it can happen. 
that's quite interesting balance between doing and allowing because you did have to do certain things. You had to put in the application, you had to pack in your car, you had to talk to people. But it sounds like you were doing it all without any kind of emotional charge behind it, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Jessica, I so like your idea of just allowing things to happen rather than pushing them. Give us some other examples from your life of times when that occurred. Well, you know, I, I haven't really traveled a lot internationally except I live right on the border of Canada, so I've been there a handful of times. And I decided to have a vision board party with my friends. And I thought, what is the one place in the world that I want to go? And it was Italy. So I put a picture of Italy on the board, and my friend said, how are you going to do that? You hate flying. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't need to know how I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. And I just, again, sat with that picture for a moment and just imagined myself actually in Italy eating pasta. And in three weeks, I had booked a trip to Italy, and it was very inexpensive. It was about $700, and it included the airfare, the hotel, and a rental car. It was amazing. And since then, I have gotten the travel bug, and I continue to, to manifest traveling. Most recently, I decided I was going to go to Cuba, and I scheduled my trip, like I mentioned, about a, for about a week ago. I was supposed to just get back this week. And about a week before the trip, I was telling my students, you know, I'm not going to be able to answer your emails. I'm not going to have access to Wi-Fi. And they kept asking me, are you sure, you know, are you sure it's safe to go? Should you really be doing that? My boyfriend was asking me, you know, are you sure you should be going there? You're not going to be able to get in touch with anyone. And it started to create some anxiety for me. And the way that I dealt with that anxiety was I started to say to people, well, I'm going to Cuba next week if they let me out of country. We were getting emails from the airlines about um, claiming in the United States you have to have a certain reason for travel because our travel is restricted to Cuba. And so I started to get very anxious and I started to say, you know, if they actually let me leave, if they actually let me leave. Well, the day that my flight was supposed to leave, we got a huge snowstorm. Our flight was canceled. It got rescheduled about three times, and the earliest flight I could get on would have gotten me there a day before I would have been flying back. So my trip to Cuba did not happen, and I think that that, you know, again goes back to intention and what you're putting out there, and that the thoughts that we tell ourselves really do matter, and the thoughts that we put out to the universe really matter. And so I was putting out there that they, meaning like the government and the airline, wasn't going to let me leave, but, you know, the snow wasn't going to let me leave. So that trip did not happen, and it was a great reminder for me to be more intentional with my with my words. And how do you be intentional with your words when it's tempting, or it's the usual practice of most people, to just say what's on their minds? They are usually very intentional with their words. Yeah, I, you know, I think it, you have to know what it is that you want. That's key, and it helps me to get some clarity. I run the freedom technique using essential oils, and that helps me to kind of get clear about what I want. And it also is a process where you can kind of release any negative thoughts and feelings around that so that you can set an affirmation that you really believe in. And I think that that's helpful. You know, it's a it's a process, so you have to catch yourself. And towards the end of the week, I, I noticed, I caught myself, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I need to stop putting this out there that I'm not going to be able to leave. But I think at that point, it was maybe too late. <laughs> Yes, you can't necessarily counteract many negative thoughts with a few positive thoughts thrown at the very end. <laughs> 
I wish you could, but especially if you have a lifetime of negative thinking, it's pretty hard to undo it, have a remedy, an antidote, with just a little bit of positive thinking at the end. And many of us think probably have a mixture of positive thinking going in our minds at the same time, don't we? Yeah, and I think that most of us walk around with some positive thoughts, some negative thoughts. Sometimes we call that realistic thoughts. But one of the things that I always would say to myself, you know, like with the, the trip to Italy, when my friend was like, how are you going to pay for it? And I said, I, you know, I, my response to her was kind of like, she said, how are you going to pay for it? That's not going to happen. And I responded to her and I said, but what if it does happen? Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, and then I used that line on myself because I would catch myself saying like, you're not going to fly on a plane across an ocean. And then I would say, but what if you did? So catching yourself in that is important. Yeah, that question, what if you did, is powerful because it's open-ended. It exposes us to new possibilities and it makes us think. What if my limited thinking, as you said earlier, is a lie? Right, right. Do you have a hard time doing that in your daily life? You know, I think that it depends on what it is and when it is. And like with Cuba, obviously, I had a hard time. I I fell right into that trap. And that's another example of kind of that emotion contagion, right? The people around me were were nervous for me. And I started to absorb some of that. And then I started to get very anxious. And so then it became difficult for me to catch myself. But I woke up one day and I was like, oh, my gosh, what have I been saying? I can't. I got to stop saying that. Yes. It's a real challenge to master our minds because our minds have these habitual thoughts we think. I was reading a study. I, I was determined to find out how many thoughts we think a day. And there's a, a popular popular statement that we have about 60,000 thoughts a day. But I dug into the research behind it and I discovered, Jessica, that there's only been one careful study that found the number of average of 4,000 thoughts a day. But the researchers found that of those 4,000 thoughts we have a day, about 90% of them are repetitive and about a third of them are intrusive. We don't even want to think them. They're just bad things we think about that just pop into our heads unbidden. And it's such a remarkable thing to realize that, that almost all of our thinking is just on automatic pilot and what was called in neurophysiology the brain's default mode network, which is what we have going on in our brain function when we are doing an actual defined task. That brain, that default mode network is just running and most of the thinking it's doing is just reinforcing all of our negative programming. But, you know, we have technology now that we can use to help us with that. So you can set an alert, an alert on your phone to go off every hour that how we know when you push on the alert it says I am in Italy or whatever you're trying to manifest you can save a screenshot on your phone so every time you open your phone you're seeing a picture of Italy you can put post-its around your house remind you you know when you wake up in the morning you're brushing your teeth you're reading a post-it that says whatever your intention is we can we can use little tricks to help be more conscious about some of those 4,000 thoughts so that they're not you know at least the ones hopefully that we're going to repeat are positive yes and that's crucial word to use a moment ago is conscious using tricks to make us conscious because they're unconscious thoughts and if we just run our lives unconsciously on autopilot we'll just keep on repeating our thought processes and then repeating the same activities and lives but if we can train ourselves to be unconscious then we question those thoughts and we can pick new realities. Jessica, I'm so glad that you are now mentoring and modeling these healthy behaviors for young women and that teenagers have the benefit of your advice and your experience. But I'm wondering if you can just do a thought experiment with me and imagine yourself going back magically on a, on a time machine and being in the room with your teenage self. What would you tell her? What's the universal wisdom 
he would share with a teenage girl about how to see yourself, see the world, what to do, what not to do, and what the most critical advice is you could give her. I think the most important thing is to everyone around you out so that you can really tune into yourself. And as teenagers, we don't necessarily know who we are yet or what we like and what we don't like. We're starting to kind of pull away from our parents and find that independence and figure out, do I want to do the same things that my parents wanted me to do or am I a different person? And so I think it's really important to try new things and explore different things, but it can become really easy to get caught up in the different cliques at school or the messages that you know we're being bombarded with from the media. Especially teens today, they're constantly on YouTube and Snapchat and being influenced by their friends in a zillion ways. And so just being able to kind of pull away from all of that and take a, take some time to really think about what it is that, that you like, what you're passionate about, and follow that. I think that probably many teenagers get nothing like that by way of real advice, and they don't get validation for who they are. And so they're looking for models of who they might be from all those media. But I think that very few people get the affirmation that you are okay being the way you are. I think that's something that probably can't, can't think of anybody I know who ever got that kind of message when they were growing up. Yeah, I think you're constantly getting different messages from your peer group, from your teachers, from your parents, from the media. And so it's hard to, to figure out in that what you really believe. And I think it's a lot easier to just kind of blindly follow, well, today I'm hanging out with this group of people, so I'm going to do this. Well, now I'm with my family today, so I'm going to give them the answers that I think they want from me. And so then you maybe leave the house and start working or you go off to college and then realize that you're completely lost because you have no sense of self. And so especially with all the technology and everything, you know, it's hard for adults to find time to separate themselves from their phone. But even if it's just, you know, you were you mentioned meditation, you know, taking that time meditating and just getting quiet with yourself can be a, a huge and a, a really valuable thing for, for teenagers and really for anyone. Yeah, and it's encouraging that more and more teenagers are meditating and giving themselves some kind of internal space and a respite from all of the bombardment of those messages from the media. It's very encouraging to me that it's not just adults who are meditating, it's also younger people that are finding that it's, it's worth doing. Do you find that teenagers are open to techniques like the recommendation they meditate? I think that they I think that they are. I think that they're open to a lot of stuff that, you know, their parents might think of kind of new age or weird. I think yeah, I think that they're open to it. That's great because being open to it, they then have a chance to create a new world where those kinds of values and spiritual priorities have real real weight and real force in their lives and the world around them. Jessica, I'm so grateful to you for being on and sharing your wisdom with us, sharing your perspective with us, sharing your heart and your passion with us. Thank you so much for being here and thanks so much for the work you're doing in the world. Well, thank you for having me. 